Hi, welcome to Parenting Bites. This is Rebecca Levy of Kids Views. I'm here today with Amy Oztan of Amy Ever After. Hi. And Andrea Smith, technology guru extraordinaire. Hello. Hi, Andrea. Um, we today are talking about, we're, we're very incestuous today. We're just going to talk about Amy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with that. Um, Amy wrote an article this week on the ESRB video game rating system, which um, may be new to many of you. I, we hear often from parents, why aren't there ratings for video games? There are. Um, we um, heard that from our president. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, that, I, I'm not surprised. Um but we are going to break, Amy wrote this great article sort of breaking down what the ratings mean, can parents trust them, and other resources for figuring out whether your kids should or should not be playing certain video games or just what you should know before allowing them to, if you even know what your kids are playing, right? Let's even start there. Um, and then we will have our bites of the week. So let's jump in, Amy, on your article that's on the Tom's Hardware site. Yeah. Um, under gaming, Amy, you're like an official gaming writer now. <laughs> I know that's crazy because I'm so not a gamer. It's funny because I'm currently writing a big article for another one of their websites all about Fortnite after spending a lot of time on this podcast saying, yeah, I don't care about Fortnite. Um, so the best way to get me to care about something is to assign me an article about it. And then all of a sudden I know everything about it. Um, and didn't you say your daughter too, is like you were saying to, to her that she should try playing it or start playing it. And everyone else is trying to get their kids to stop playing it. Yeah. I don't know what's wrong with me. Like I, I started playing it just to familiarize myself with it, to write the article. The article wasn't about how to play. It was more a, a parent's guide. Um, and I'll definitely let you know when that's out, but it just, you know, to, just for my own amusement and, and, uh, just to, to get a sense of what the game was like, I started playing and I could see instantly why it was so addictive and it was a lot of fun. And you know, my son had played it. He had tried it out and he went right back to PUBG, which is a similar game. He liked PUBG better, but my daughter had never tried it. So I convinced her to try it, which is insane because like you said, all parents are trying to get their kids to stop playing it. And then like yesterday, she had a bunch of friends over playing it. I'm like, oh, what did I do? You created a monster. I did. <laughs> so yeah. So I, um, kind of similar to that, I, I was assigned this article about the ESRB, which is the Entertainment Software Ratings Board. And um, I knew nothing about it. Absolutely nothing. I never paid a ton of attention to the ratings on video games. And um, I, I, so I was basically starting from scratch, like as a parent who would know nothing about it and if you can trust it. Because I, I feel like... I don't know. I think that the movie ratings are, are sometimes a good guide, but I don't pay a ton of attention to those either. But at least I've seen enough movies that I, I get a sense of whether or not I should pay attention to them. With video games, since I'm not a gamer, I really didn't have any sense on whether they bore any resemblance to reality. So my first step was finding out how they actually get the ratings. And it was kind of interesting. Um, they're, they don't actually play the games. Um, often they have to come up with these ratings before the games are actually released. And so there isn't really a final version to play. Um, they give, and we're just talking about physical 
games here, like games that you go into a store and buy. There's a different process for games that are just downloadable because there are like a zillion of those. But we're talking about those ratings that you see on the games box when you go into GameStop or Target or whatever. So the panel, um, which is made up of parents and some other people, um, they don't play the games. They give a survey to the publisher and the publisher has to give them a lot of information about what's contained in the game. And they often read scripts from the game so they can see what kind of language is used. They might uh, read the lyrics from songs that are included in the game and um, they'll take a look at the game. You know, they'll, they'll, get video and screenshots from it. And if there's uh, anything else they can look at, they will. And then often they'll do a spot check after the game is released just to make sure that the publishers were being honest. So it's so interesting because many now, I think ESRB started what, like 94, like when, when software first came out. Right. And, you know, of course, having, you know, an older child now, Matt was young when these video games came out. And I will never forget. And of course, I knew what I was doing because I was in the field. But I mean, these kids were like 10 years old, nine years old. And I always would say to the parent, hey, listen, you know, they're going to play this game. Are you okay with it? And Matt would go to somebody's house and come home and say, mom, you know, their mom lets them play Grand Theft Auto which of course I would never. And that was the big, horrible game back then. And I, I, I was finally said to one mother, Hey, you know, I'm really surprised, you know, that's an M rated game. And she looked at me like I was I, I, like, I was a zombie, you know, and basically said, what are you talking about? I have no idea what that means. And I had to physically show her in those days we had boxes, right? There was actually a software box that had it. And it said, you know, sexual mischief, you know, that kind of thing. And she was shocked. And so I kind of went around and started telling all of Matt's friends' parents, and everyone hated me for this, of course. But people don't know, and I think it holds true, what, 15 years later? They don't know that that's there. You know, I think that in broad strokes, the the ratings are a good guide, um, even though I should mention this is a self-regulation thing. Um, back in 94, everyone, uh, all of the video games were coming under fire from the government. I think it wasn't it Tipper Gore. Or was that rap lyrics? I forget. Yes. I, I just remember Tipper Gore being my enemy from my childhood, but I don't remember why. Um, and so in an effort to kind of stave off Congress from making rules about video games, the video game industry came up with the ESRB to self-regulate. And it, it actually seems to be working okay. I mean, the from what I've seen, the ratings do bear, bear resemblance to reality. And there are basically, um, let's see, seven ratings that you can find on a box. Uh, early childhood, everyone, everyone 10 plus, teen, um, mature, which is 17 plus, adults only, which is 18 plus and very rare because stores really won't carry the adults only games. And then RP, which is ratings pending. And you only find that when a game hasn't been released yet. And they haven't, you know, like they're doing marketing for it, but they they don't know what the rating is yet. Um, So what I found was that um, this really is a good starting place to decide whether or not you want your child to play a game. And it's, it's a difficult thing because 
all kids are different. All families are different. Um, you know, what one family deems completely acceptable, another family might be, oh my God, I would never let my child play that or hear that or see that. So it's not going to be exact, but it's a good place to start. And they also give more than just that rating. They also give you content content descriptors, um, which can give you a little more context. Like if a game is rated M for mature, you can look on the box and see if that's due to nudity or violence or language or, you know, something else. And so maybe you're okay with your kids seeing a little nudity, but not with bad language. That's a weird example, but Right. Or maybe, maybe you're okay with people, you know, seeing nudity, but not shooting up people. Like you get to choose what vice you don't want your kids to see. So, you know, if there's something that you're absolutely against, that's a good way to weed it out. And they will also tell you what kind of interactive elements are present in the game. Like if you can make in-game purchases, if users can interact with each other. Um, Because I have to tell you, once users can interact with each other, the rating becomes largely meaningless because a, a game can be can be completely benign, and I think our guest said that about Fortnite. A game can be completely benign, but then once you've got adults on there, they can talk or or teens, they can talk about whatever they want, and there's nothing that the game or the console or whatever can do to stop it. So, you know, if you want to keep um, keep everything completely safe, you would never be able to let your child play a game where users can interact with each other in any way, because there's usually no way to control that. Most games do not have strict filters on the chats. And if there's voice chat, then anything goes. What's interesting is, I mean, I think parents mostly focus on the Fortnite, the Call of Duty, the, you know, Grand Theft Auto, but that's true of HQ, right? If your kid has the chat open in HQ, people can say horrible <laughs> things in that chat. They're always like, keep it nice, you know? But it's true in games that are seemingly benign. Um, and I think parents just need to be aware of that because it, it happens very quickly. Um, so your kid really might be too young. And just just turn the chat off. Just, you know, have some rules when your kids are are doing that. Right. And in some games, you can turn chat off. In some games, it's a function of the game. In other cases, it's something that you might be able to do on whatever console Mm -hmm. the child is playing on or with, you know, if if you're in Windows or if you're in Mac, sometimes there are settings that you can change. Um, So there are other ways to control that. But it's it's so complicated sometimes between what's going on in the game and what's going on 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 your console or your platform. Um, So that's something that it's really hard to say, just do this. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, what's interesting is because we work with a lot of gaming companies at Kids Views. And what's always been shocking to me is how seriously they take the ratings, actually. Um, Because we work with kids, they will never, ever give us a game that is not E for everyone. Even if it's a 10 plus, they will not because they don't want to risk a seven or an eight year old. Um, being seen as being targeted for, for this game. So it's really interesting to me that if it's not E for everyone, the gaming companies really don't want to market to kids. Like they really go out of their way to make sure um, that an E for everyone game is, it's not just like G rated. It's truly um, benign and enjoyable for everybody but could still be a really, really fun game. Um, That's really interesting because my my editor on this piece, on this piece, Avram Pilch, who's been on this podcast, um, he pointed out that he lets his son, who I think is six, 
play a lot of 10 plus games because often, often the only difference between an E and a 10 plus game is, um, is like cartoony violence, you know, like the kind of thing that, you know, like a piano dropping on somebody's head kind of or violence, like Tunes. but exactly. But that's enough to push it up to the next rating. So that would cut out a lot of games. Right. But I think a lot, and but I do think that a lot of parents are okay with that because it's kind of like cartoony violence and you don't see, um, you know, you don't, you don't actually see people doing horrible things, shooting right. or, or violence. You just, it's, it's more like comic mischief, I think. Yeah. It's really interesting. You know, what's interesting to me is how broad the category is for violence or nudity, you know, what, what's missing. And I think a lot of the conversation has centered around this the past couple of years about the video gaming industry in general is it's a lot of it, you know, we talk about shooting, but a lot of these games are actually so incredibly misogynistic and mm-hmm. stereotypically gendered. Um, and I think for parents, that's something to look out for too, that these ratings do not address. Um, and it is something that's being, you know, people are trying to address within the industry itself, both on the creator producer side, um, you know, and in the responsibility side or the discussion side. And, uh, you know, to me, Um, You know, one of the most interesting things in your article, Amy, was that interview with a pediatrician who said some of these kids in his practice that he's seen who've been exposed to some of these really violent games before they can process Mm -hmm. it end up having nightmares about killing their loved ones and have like PTSD symptoms um, because they're, you know, kids don't distinguish between reality and non-reality very well when they're young. It's, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're just not good at it. Um, So that's also what they're ingesting. They are ingesting these sort of, it's not just the violence and the shooting, but these really throwback, you know, the most sexist, ridiculous images. Um, you gotta, you have to see what your kids are playing. I mean, that's really the bottom line. Like we talk about it with social media, but it's so important with gaming. If you have a kid, especially a kid who's playing a lot, um, you got, you gotta be in there with them. And having a discussion with them while they're playing. Yeah. And, I, you know, I will say that that was something that was, um, it, it was something that my husband and I argued about a lot when our son was younger, because our son just came out of the womb wanting to play video games. And my husband plays a lot of video games. And it was something that they wanted to do together. But the games that my husband wanted to play with my son were not ones that I thought was appropriate at all. Um, and in the end, what we ended up doing was just watching his behavior very carefully. And if being exposed to games like Call of Duty had changed his behavior in any way, like if he had started lashing out at other kids or his sister or which I should, you know, he was lashing out at his sister before video games. So, um, but if it got worse, uh, you know, or if, 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 I don't know if he was sleeping differently or if anything changed, then we would have revisited it. Um, but we did make our son understand that this was a privilege that couldn't be, that could be taken away very easily if the game was affecting him. And, um, I think that's very important. You have to look at how the game is affecting your child because each child is not going to react to it the same way. Did he understand, I'm curious, did he understand what you were saying in the sense of how it's affecting him? Like, you know, my son would get scared at movies sometimes and he understood that the movie gave him nightmares, but do kids get that about video games? 
I, I mean, in my own case, I think he did because it's the same attitude that we had had towards him wanting to watch things like Family Guy. We were very clear. We said, okay, you're going to hear some stuff that is not appropriate. A lot of it's going to go over your head, but a lot of it you will remember and try to understand. And if we hear you repeating it, you're done watching the show. So he knew from an early age that if he started misbehaving because of something he saw on a screen, that screen was going to be taken away. That's brilliant. And for us, it, for us, it worked. You know, we, we, maybe we got lucky. Or he just didn't tell you. <laughs> Hey, as long as I'm not hearing about it from a parent or a teacher, then I consider that a success. It's so funny. Yeah. I mean, look, I think video games are like anything else, right? I mean, you can't really blame the game. Um, You have to be on top of it and know what's right for your kid and be involved. And if you're just going to step back and let it be a babysitter, then it's just like any other you know, right. form of Just entertainment like TV or, media, or movie or anything else. You got to know what your kid yeah, is doing. I mean, if your kid's watching a ton of porn, your kid's watching a ton of porn. Like if you don't know what your kids are doing and then you see something later or you're not having a conversation with them about things, then there's bound to be issues that come up later. Um, and it doesn't have to be behavior or bad things. It just might be their misunderstanding of the world in some way <laughs> that has to be sort of corrected or remedied. Um, or nothing, you know, or they're just, they just have, you know, whatever they have this experience and it's really social and really fun. And God knows now they can make millions of dollars a year if they get really good at it or get a college scholarship into an esports league. I mean, you know, the, the reality of how video games are now becoming a dominant um, entertainment form in a mass way is it's real. I mean, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, not just the selling, but the spectating now. Um, and with Twitch and everything. So it's hard for parents to say you're wasting your time anymore. But um, <laughs> Rebecca, am I remembering wrong? Or did you post an article about a college that actually gave a scholarship for gaming? Well, the Big Ten is starting an esports league. I mean, wow. it's going to be an NCAA sport. I trust me within the next 10 years, because they see the money, they see the money behind it. And it would not surprise me if the growth of collegiate esports leads to a real official um, NCAA designation. And I have to say a lot of the uh, tech companies, like I've been at press conferences with the big, big tech companies, computer makers, and they've brought up gamers, you know, because a lot of these companies make gaming laptops and, you know, all of the hardware that goes into the video game consoles, they've brought up gamers, you know, who people have been watching on Twitch and they've advanced and they become like world championship. And these are like any other influencer, except they're video game players. I think they just had a story on one of the guys who I think he's the one who plays Fortnite that just played with Drake. I want to say his name is like something ninja or ninja type, but he, they said he makes $500,000 a month on Twitch. Kids play more, get really good. (laughs) But again, it's probably, it's like any other sport then, right? There'll be a very, very top percentage that excel and become pro and the, and the rest do not, um, but probably don't risk the same injury as a uh, college football player who doesn't make it to the NFL, who ends up with concussions and whatever. These guys probably just end up with a carpal tunnel. Or like the, a girl, there's an article going around about a nine-year-old who got so addicted to Fortnite that she, her father, like they, they had forbidden her from playing more than an, I think an hour a day and two hours on weekends. And her father found her up in the middle of the night playing on a urine soaked cushion. Ew. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we should say this week, they, right. The World Health Organization declared 
video game addiction as a as a real mental health designation. Yeah, yeah, um, they did, and we'll talk. We're going to talk about that in an upcoming yeah. podcast. So, but. so there's like you know there's there's things, but um, but the ratings are a good place to start. And the other thing you mentioned in this article, Amy, is common sense media, mm-hmm. where you can get real people insight and reviews and sort of more in-depth look at what what might be behind those ratings. Yeah, you can get a little more context. You can get um, some parents' reactions. One of the things that I love that Common Sense Media does is they give what they think is a good age range for the video games, but then you can also see the age range that parents think it's appropriate for and the age range that kids think it's appropriate for because kids also write reviews on Common Sense Media. So it's you can kind of take all of that together with what the ESRB is saying and, you know, make a judgment call because I, I really think it's unrealistic that most of us are like playing these games before our kids like to decide. I know I never played a single game before my kids played it. So I think there is enough information out there about the games. Uh, you just have to take a few minutes and look for it. Yeah, for sure. Look, it's literally why we started kids views. No joke. I was getting sent so many video games to review and I don't do that and had zero interest playing, but my daughter's <laughs> We're like, you know, they were seven at the time. I'm like, oh, they could review Pets Nursery too. You know? <laughs> like, and there was nowhere for them to do it. But it's it is a hundred percent why we started because we just didn't see a place where kids were giving their feedback on on games, and then it became toys and books and whatever. But you know, the last thing I was going to do was stick a cartridge in the DS and play. There was just no way. I only did that a few times. I think they were all dancing games, like Dance Dance Revolution and and things oh, like yeah. that. Those I loved to. <laughs> review. But other than that, no. That's so funny. Well, we should urge parents, like pay attention to the reviews, pay attention to what your kids are playing. Um, and if you don't want to play the games with them, at least sit next to them for a couple sessions and see what it is they're doing. And don't feel like video games are something so foreign and weird and automatically bad. Just just be in there with them and check out the ratings. There is actually guidance out there if you need it. You don't have to just scream into the Facebook void. <laughs> Um, and with that, uh, we will be right back with our bites of the week. Okay, we are back with our bites of the week. Amy, what you got? Okay, mine is very, very silly because um, it's it's a depressing time, and I need silliness in my life. So, um, my friend Melanie tagged me on Facebook on an article that just had me laughing out loud. Um, I'm half Italian. But I do not come from a rich food background. We ate very American when I was growing up, like kind of hippie-ish. Um, you know, we were vegetarian. And also, as Rebecca knows, I've been known to praise Olive Garden publicly. So there's a good chance that Italians have disowned me anyway. But I had so much fun scrolling through the Twitter account, Italian Comments. It's at Italian Comments. And the name of the Twitter account is Italians Mad at Food. And uh, Melanie actually tagged me in an article on The Cut from New York Magazine written by Gabriella Paella titled, This Twitter Account About Angry Italians is My Favorite Place Online. And it's basically a Twitter feed that screenshots Italian people who are complaining about food online from video comments or Tumblr or Twitter or wherever, restaurant reviews, everything. And it's full of anger 
threats, mockery, and so much righteous indignation about how Americans cook Italian food or how they make something up and claim that it's Italian food. And it's, it's just hilarious. And the, the, the things that seem to draw the most anger are cooking pasta incorrectly, adding cream to tomato sauce, which I love, adding garlic mushrooms or onions to carbonara, which apparently it should be punishable by death, um, <laughs> putting chicken in pasta, which I didn't know wasn't supposed to be a thing, or putting pineapple on pizza, which, oh. yeah, that grows. And my daughter loves that. Mine too. Yeah. So um, I'm just going to read a few to you. I can't read many because a lot of them have swearing in them because, hey, we're Italian. We like to swear. Um, but uh, so I'll edit these. Um, pasta boiled in milk. Yes, we did things like this for our dog or uh, Tuscany should sue you for defamation. Um, oh, my God. Stop adding heavy cream to tomato sauce, please. An Italian dies when you do that. Or um a recipe like this is a crime worse than a murder. And I, I, I don't know, just scrolling through this made me so happy that Italians care so much about their food that they will get this angry about it online. I just thought it was hilarious. What's so funny about that to me is that I feel like this has been going on for quite a while, especially online of, of ethnicities angry about the bastardization of their food. Um, but Jews and Italians have been here for so long and their food was bastardized. Like it's been a good, like almost hundred years yeah. <laughs> you know? uh -huh. um, that Italian American food is its own cuisine at this point. Right. It's, like spaghetti and meatballs. I mean, think about Chef Boyardee was what the fifties when Chef Boyardee came out. Like right. it's like Tex-Mex. Like I love Tex-Mex. Yes. I don't like actual Mexican food. Right. Right. And like when you look at, I mean, the fact like my grandmother still cannot get over that bagels are bagels, that bagels are everywhere in the grocery store, in the whatever, right? Because they were <laughs> weird for eating bagels. Um, and so it's interesting to me that then there's this new backlash by Italians because that their cuisine has been so changed and so Americanized for so many years that you almost feel like, dude, that ship has sailed. Like you are not getting back what is deemed authentic Italian cuisine in this country. Like it is not happening. Yeah. I mean, forget it. It is funny to me though, because I'll see people who are really angry about when they'll take, you know, an Asian dish and do something and still call it that. And people are like, that's not faux or that's not whatever. But those same people will post a quote unquote lasagna that's made from like layers of zucchini, which like no, <laughs> right? No Italian would allow that. The lasagna is the noodle. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, that's another thing that really pissed the Italians off was calling pasta noodles if it's not right. like actually specifically a noodle. Right. No, they're crazy. Like it's that's what I'm saying. But like nobody thinks twice about doing that with Italian food. Like right. it just it just doesn't happen. It's kind of um, like how Chinese food is American. Chinese food now, right? Oh, you yeah. Know, it's like, you you know, people, I, you go to a restaurant, you're not really going to get what you would get in China. You're going to get Americanized Chinese food, period. Right. Yes, and, but, but that but, was done. So here's, this is like such a different conversation about food and ethnicity, but that happened. The Chinese restaurateurs here are the ones who changed it. Just like the Italian restaurateurs here, right? Like they adapted to American taste so that they could right, sell for this audience. their food. Yeah. To market yeah. to this audience. All right. Well, listen, my bite is food related too. How about that? <laughs> we have a theme going here. All right. What is it? <laughs> so you guys know that I never, ever, hardly ever watch current television, right? 
So as you can imagine, even though I know very well who Anthony Bourdain was and was very saddened um, by what happened, I had never actually seen any of his episodes, any of his TV shows. Can you believe it? Wow. No, no. And so, of course, I thought, oh, my God, you know, everybody loved this guy. The whole idea of using food and drink as, as a way to explore culture, you know, I just never saw it. So I stumbled upon an article um, on a site called coolmaterial.com, which I also have never seen before, but we'll have the link to it. And it's our 10 favorite episodes of Anthony Bourdain's TV shows, which was really helpful in trying to find which ones to target, you know, if I wanted to watch two or three just to see. And so it's great because they've got like one of his from Charleston, South Carolina. They've got one of their favorites, which is one from Ice. Iceland, uh, one from Tokyo. So we'll have the link to it. And it's uh, for me, it was a really great way to just click right there and watch the episode and, uh, and see what he was all about. He actually wrote a great article kind of about what Amy was talking about, but about how the history of food is the history of adaptation and, you know, like this just mix a constant mixing of, of cultures and cuisines that that's the entire history of food. And that even when people say like, this is authentically this, um, there's no such thing because that dish evolved because of this colonization that happened then. And like it was, it's really actually really interesting about how people can't be so precious about what they think is authentic when actually there's no such thing as you trace the history of so much food back. Oh, send um, me that link and I'll, I'll put it on the post and also, no, and also, and also Rebecca's and also I'm going to post the link that started it all. The, he sent a completely unsolicited article in, um, that eventually that was so popular it eventually became his first book kitchen confidential um so we'll post a link to that too because it's really really good and it's amazing he's going to be sorely missed uh, yeah yeah all right now it's me so i have a pretty local bite but i actually think everyone in the country this probably is having a similar issue just not to the degree that it happens in new york so in new york we have um, a ridiculous high school process, which some people would call choice. <laughs> Other people would call hell. Um, but part of that quote unquote choice system is that there are eight so-called selective schools in New York City that rely on one test to make their admissions decision. And it's become very famous test. It's been around since, well, I guess the early, like 71 is when it became the law that this test would be used for three schools, which were the only three that existed at the time that used it. And now there's eight. Um, but there's a, been a constant fight over the admissions test and who it favors. And that has changed throughout its history is which groups have, have done better on those tests or made up the majority of these schools. There's a new focus on this again, because it is startling, um, the racial makeup of the schools and it leaves out a huge percentage of African-American and Latinx students in this city. Um, and they're trying to get to the root of why, well, no, they're not trying to get to the root of why they're trying to get rid of the test <laughs> so that they think it'll be more equal, but they're not, they're actually not addressing why there's this inequality to begin with at all. They're blaming it on test prep, which is really just the teeny part of the problem. But anyway, these schools only educate about 6% of New York City high schoolers. So it is a getting a lot of attention for something that is actually a very small portion of the New York City education system. However, um, 
aside from it being sort of a political optics bonanza, um, it is a real issue of why this is why this disparity exists. And New York One, which is our local all news all day station, if you have Spectrum, which used to be Time Warner here in New York, did an incredible documentary. They followed five different kids through this process this year and did a documentary from beginning to end where they find out the results. Um, And it aired this week on New York One and it's called A Select Few and it's online. So you don't have to live in New York to see it. You don't have to have been setting your DVR like me to watch it. (laughs) Um, So I highly recommend if you are at all interested just in education, in gifted education, in racial inequality and disparity at our best schools, this is a problem across the country. It's just obviously like everything else magnified in New York. But this this testing system exists in many, many, many cities. Um, So it's just really fascinating. And they picked five really diverse kids from very different schools. And they are not, they don't paint anyone in a certain page. Like you want all these kids to get in. Like this is, you know, this is still the public school system. This is not the elite private system where you're like, Ooh, these kids, like these are all public school kids just trying to get into the best school they can, um, or that they perceive as the best school. But it's, it's so, I highly recommend, um, this show and yeah, check it out online. Plus I love New York one. It's like my, I would never, ever get rid of spectrum and switch to Fios because I have to have New York one. Oh, it's my husband makes fun of me, but I like, love it. No, it's my husband's favorite channel. And that's why we still have spectrum. Like I, yeah. I canceled the Fios request. Cause my husband was like, what? We won't have New York one. No way. Yeah. I have to have like my group in the morning. I need Pat Kiernan. <laughs> I need, I need, there's like a morning crew yeah. and I have to see them. Um, but anyway, I always feel like New York is a small town and I think New York one just like makes that so exponentially clear. Yeah. <laughs> like it is just, it, if you feel like you live in a town of 200 people when you watch New York one, it's hilarious. Yeah. And I need to watch that documentary. That sounds amazing. Um, I, you know, having been through it twice and you've been through it twice. Um, I'm hoping I can watch it without, without PTSD because it really is a rough process. Um, it is a rough process. Yeah. But that article, it was, you know, I read it when you posted it on Facebook and even though it is a local article, there are themes that would apply to any school system anywhere. So yes. everyone should read that it. That article in the Atlantic is great. Written by two alumni of one of the schools, yeah. I should say too. Um, horse sufferers, but that article, what it addresses is what the politicians are not talking about, which is why this has happened. Because when the politicians talk about it, they talk about it like this is how it's always been. And it is not true. Right. Some of these schools were 60% black and Latinx in the eighties. Yeah. So something happened and they sort of trace the breakdown of tracking in middle schools and honors classes. And it's really fascinating. Um, so it's not so simple. And this test has actually been a very decent barometer, um, of the ability to handle the rigor of those schools for a very long time. So there's something else amiss. Um, they also don't talk at all about all of the schools that don't use this test that are, have way more racial disparity. Um, which I think is interesting because politically they don't want to touch those schools because they're in very wealthy parts of the Upper East Side. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't talk about those schools, which actually have the highest percentage of, um, I don't know, or the lowest percentage, I should say of, of diversity. Um, but yeah, that's, that's not politically easy. 
Yeah. So. Complicated as all things in New York are and all things about education are. Yep. Um, but that is our show for today. Thanks, Amy. You're welcome. Thanks, Andrea. Bye, guys. See ya. And we will be back in two weeks um, with our next show. Hope you join us then. You can check us out in the meantime on facebook.com slash parenting bites. I think in two weeks, we're going to have a, a repeat, right? And then we'll be back with our new episode in three weeks. Yeah, we'll have a repeat, but it'll be relevant. Yeah, totally relevant repeat <laughs> just because it's a holiday and we're not going to work, but we'll we'll be back the right. next week with something brand new. And I'm sure on facebook.com slash Parenting Bites, we'll be posting great informative articles in the meantime, because we always like to keep whatever's going on um, top of mind. And if you have any questions, requests, thoughts, issues you're dealing with, feel free to shoot us a message or post on our Facebook page. We love to hear from our audience and check us out on Apple podcasts, Google play and anywhere, you know, you listen to your podcasts. I think even Alexa at this point. So (laughs) check us out until, until next time. Happy parenting. Bye.